So I'm glad to resume First Peter this morning. And we get to the beginning of chapter 3. It's not quite halfway through the book, but we're close. And if you recall, before I left, we were traveling through this section in First Peter where, where Peter's telling believers how to live in the world. He's giving a strategy, God's strategy for successful Christian living amidst an unbelieving world. And if you've noticed, though, over the past couple uh, sections, really the past chapter, he's really shown a spotlight on a certain groups of people and, and called them out, singled them out. And do you know what these groups of people in the church have in common? These are all groups of people who in that time, in that society, were weak and powerless. Peter started off with Christian citizens in the empire. The world was growing increasingly hostile toward Christianity, and these small pockets of scattered believers had little power in the face of an unfriendly government. Then Peter moved on to Christian servants or slaves in the empire, and these of all people were, were the most weak, the most powerless, the most at the mercy of, the, of their masters. Now, all, all throughout the world, all throughout history, there have been weak and powerless people. It's nothing new. In the Middle Ages, there were the serfs. In, in colonial times, there were the slaves. Whether economically or socially or politically, there always have been the weak and the strong. For those in the secular world, though, who, who are the weak and the powerless? How do they often react to that situation? Over time, history has shown us that they react aggressively, that they demand power and privilege and rights. Sometimes they even fight for it. There have been countless uprisings over the centuries where the peasant population just rises up and seeks to overturn the, the aristocrats, those in power, seeking to restore power to the people. More recently, we've witnessed the, the Occupy movement. Have you heard about this? It's kind of interesting. On our recent vacation, we were just walking through and a city, and we saw... On a, a board game store, of all places, a board game store, there's a, a note in the window, a sign in the window that said, you know, we are the 99%. And, you know, we support the 99%. You're like, well, what's that all about? Well, it's part of this thing called the Occupy Movement. It took place in the past year. These masses of people seeing themselves as the weak and the powerless organized together to protest, sometimes peacefully, sometimes violently, against the 1% of the population who controls a, really a disproportionate amount of wealth. Whatever you think about this movement, the point I'm making here is that people in the world, even today, still, when they feel weak and powerless, sooner or later, they, they take matters into their own hands, they revolt against authority, and they fight for their rights. What's so amazing to learn, though, is that the Bible, and we've learned this over 1 Peter, the Bible does not promote this type of response. The Bible speaks to people who are likewise weak and powerless in society, but the message is not to, to take matters into your own hands. It's not to revolt against authority. It's not to fight for your rights. To the contrary, as we've seen, the message is to respect authority, even submit to authority while trusting God and doing what is right. It's such a counter cultural message, what Peter's been telling us. Yet this is what God wants because this is a faith response. This response, it's one of depending on God, not self. It's where you believe him and believe in him 
for your life. That, that's what this response is all about. Many people today don't like this type of response, this submission. But this strategy of submission, it, it's what pleases God. And if you as a believer struggle with this, then you need to look to Jesus. In fact, our, the last passage we were in in First Peter did just that. Peter pointed to Christ as our chief example of one who suffered but still submitted. Jesus is the ultimate example of a person who was weak and powerless. But not by nature, by choice. Of course, he had all the power in the universe. I mean, Christ could have, with just a single word, a single breath, spoken the entire universe just out of existence, just like that. He had all the power. But in submission to the Father, he, he veiled his, po- his power. He allowed himself to suffer and to be killed at the hands of sinful men. Why would he do that? Why would he let them crucify him? Why, why would he stop them? He, he could have. But this was the Father's will. And he was submitting himself to the Father. That's our example. Now, all the while, he did not sin while being harshly treated, but he just trusted God and entrusted himself to God. That's our example. And I don't want us to look past this, so look just a chapter before at 1 Peter 2. Look at verse 21. Let's just be reminded of that example before we really go any further. 1 Peter 2, look at verse 21. He says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And friends, this is what we need to do in the world. God's strategy for how you should live in a world of unbelievers, it's one of submission to authority. While trusting God, you need to do the same thing. We saw this for government. First Peter 2.13 Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors. We saw this for the workplace. Chapter 2, verse 18. Look there. Servants, be submissive to your masters. With all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. And today, in the last section in this part of First Peter, we see it for the home. First Peter chapter 3, look at verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. In the first century, wives often fit into the powerless category, especially religiously. First century wives were just expected to follow the religion of their husbands. Now, if a husband came to Christ, the wife would either perhaps generally get saved or at least just play along, but it didn't result in a lot of conflict. But what happens when the wife comes to Christ and the husband doesn't? And she no longer can, in good conscience, follow her husband to the pagan temples anymore. She can't offer incense anymore. She can't pray to the gods anymore. What then? This would shame the husband, and in response, he would 
persecute the wife, or at the very least, make her life difficult. And Peter knows this. Peter knows that this is going on. And he knows that wives, especially those married to unbelievers, are in a precarious situation. So he includes words of counsel to them and for them. Our passage then in 1 Peter 3, really 1 through 7, formulates God's strategy for Christians living in the home. Six of these seven verses are devoted to the wife, and really especially those who are married to unbelieving spouses. And today we're going to spend all of our time on these first six verses, focusing on the wife. Next week we'll come back and we'll really blow out that one verse on the husband's. But today, it's all about the wives. So let's read together this passage just to get you acquainted with it. 1 Peter 3, and we're going to read 1 through 6. He writes, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children, if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. There's a lot to cover in this passage. Let me just start off by saying this, though, that we all need this passage, this text. All of us. Of course, it applies to all the wives in the room. It's especially going to apply to any of the wives married to unbelieving husbands. But but even for the men, men, you need to know this passage. It's going to help you lead and love your wives better. You need to know what God says to them. And maybe a word to, to the older generation, whether you're married or not. God expects you to be skilled in this knowledge by now. He really does. And sooner or later, a younger person, maybe they're related to you, maybe not, will ask you about it. And you have to be ready to to speak the truth to them and point them in the right direction. So this is also important for you. We all need this word, this word from God. Overall, our world so readily confuses the marriage roles today that we all just need this rare word of of clarity on the matter. And thankfully, this passage shines like like a, a patch of clear blue sky in the midst of a dense fog. And although our world is lost in a fog when it comes to these marriage roles, we have a timeless yet fresh word from Scripture to guide us. And we're going to look at that this morning. Like I said, we're just going to look at the first six verses. And I want us to find from them God's seven instructions for women in the home. Seven instructions for women in the home, especially those married to unbelieving husbands. That's what we're doing today. God's Seven instructions for women in the home, especially those married to unbelieving husbands. The first one is a big one. Let's start off right off the bat. Number one, be submissive. 
Number one, straight from the text in verse one, be submissive. He begins the passage and says, verse one, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Referring back to his previous discussions on submission, Peter's saying to wives, in the same way, in the same manner, like we've studied before, to be submissive to their own husbands. Now, the world hates this type of talk, especially the the feminist movement. They hate any talk of a woman being submissive to a husband. Are you kidding me? I mean, there's not a single TV show out there that actually showcases the, the biblical standard. And many Christians themselves aren't really crazy about this teaching. They, they don't understand it, or they don't like it, or both. Now today, I'm not going to blow out this teaching and do like a multi-part series on it, and give you the whole nine yards. That's, that's because less than a year ago, we covered the exact same topic of, of women submitting to their husbands from Titus chapter 2. I spent an entire sermon carefully explaining what this submission means, what it does not mean, just just the whole nine yards. So I'll tell you this. If you want the long version explanation of what we're going to talk about today, if you want the long version, go onto our website, download the Titus 2, 4 through 5 sermon, titled The Portrait of the Younger Generation, Part 2, and I'll give you everything. So I'll say it one more time. If you want the long version, Titus 2, 4 through 5 sermon, on our website, the Portrait of the Younger Generation, Part 2. That's why we have a website now, after all. You can get the long version. Today, I'm just going to give you the shorter version because we've covered it before. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so the condensed version for now. We're going to start with the basics on this idea of submission. So let's cover the basics here. The teaching on submission has to do with roles. Roles, you know that. God, starting at creation, he gave different roles to the husband and to the wife. At creation, to the husband, he gave the role of head, which just means the leader. And to the wife, he gave the role of suitable helper. The husband, as the head, is to lead the family, and the wife is to, to help, to support that leadership, working together as one. At the same time, this teaching on submission has nothing to do with inequality. I think most of you know that by now, but we have to keep reiterating this. Although God created man and woman with with different roles, he created them perfectly equal as human beings. In other words, God equally loves and values man and woman. They are equally created in his image, and he equally values them. Neither is superior to the other. For the wife to submit to her husband does not make her inferior or unequal to her husband any more than any more so than Christ's submission to his earthly parents made him inferior to them or unequal a single body cannot have two heads or two leaders one must clearly lead and God has simply chosen the man to fulfill that leadership role what's amazing here people think oh that's that's countercultural well it really is compared to the first century view of women. See, back then, when this was being written, the ancient Romans, they actually believed that by nature, woman was inferior to man. The Romans taught that women lacked man's capacity to reason. 
but they're ruled by their emotions. They had poor judgment. They were immoral, greedy, untrustworthy. That's how women were viewed in the first century. But here's what's amazing. Neither Peter, nor Paul, nor Jesus ever says anything like this about women. Ever. And to the contrary, the Bible highly values and prizes women. They're not inferior. They're not intellectually weaker. They're not more wicked. And just one verse later, we'll see it next week in 3.7, Peter says that women are, are co-heirs with men of eternal life. The Bible treats women with dignity and respect, and their role of submitting to the husband's leadership doesn't go against that. It's part of that dignity. Now, briefly, bringing husbands into this equation, all this does not mean that the husband is to bark orders at his wife or domineer over her like a dictator. That would be wrong. Think about it. Like a good leader, a husband should encourage and invite discussion and dialogue with those whom he's trying to lead. And furthermore, as part of his sacrificial love, he should die to his own personal interests and seek the interests of those around him, including his wife and family. He should treasure her and honor her and seek her best. So any picture of submission where the wife is is a slave is just false. Don't listen to it. I'll we'll cover more on the husband next week. Let's get back to 1 Peter 3.1 now. He says to wives, be submissive to your own husbands. This verb for submission, it's a present middle participle. It's reflexive, which means this. The husband is never, not once, called or commanded to, to make his wife submit or to force his wife to submit. Rather, wives are called to willfully and voluntarily submit themselves under their husband's leadership. Ultimately, though, a wife's submission to her husband reflects her submission to God. Ephesians 5.22, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. As to the Lord. When the husband and wife both function, though, as God designed, this submission, it's not a cause of grief. It's a cause of joy, of peace, of happiness in the relationship. You be the judge. It's no coincidence that in the 20th century, as the world has outright rejected God's standard for the family, thrown out the window, what's been the result? Divorce has gone through the roof. Families are torn apart, depressed. The, The whole family structure has disintegrated. Does it sound like it's worked? But today, as always, marriage is never function better and more beautifully than when both members just do what God says and just fulfill their God-given roles. And for the woman's side of things, her first instruction then is to be submissive. That's the first instruction for a woman here in 1 Peter 3. Again, if you want to take this for another 60 minutes, go online, get that sermon. You can take that one further. We'll leave that here for now, the first instruction to be submissive. Secondly, the second instruction for women in this passage is to be encouraged. Be encouraged. Let me explain this. Look again at at verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one 
without a word by the behavior of their wives. A few things here. First, Peter is introducing the possibility of wives being married to unbelieving husbands. When he says that these guys are disobedient to the word, he's not talking about Christians who are just having a bad week. It's not what he's talking about. This is a clear reference to an unbeliever. This disobedience, it's continual. It's a rejection of God and his will. It's a rejection of the gospel. At one point, these husbands heard the gospel, but they were unpersuaded and they turned against it. Peter characteristically speaks of unbelievers as being those who do not obey the word. They don't obey Christ. They don't obey the gospel. That's how he talks about unbelievers. So these are men here who have rejected God. You think, well, that probably changes things for the wife, right? She she probably doesn't have to submit to an unbeliever. Not so fast. It doesn't change anything. Right here in this verse, we, we see pretty clearly that even for wives who are married to unbelieving husbands, God still calls them to fulfill their role as the wife, even to submit to an unbelieving husband. They are still to follow God's plan, even though their husbands aren't. Now, I get this. Christian women with unbelieving husbands, they oftentimes have many fears. What if he persecutes me? What if he doesn't allow me to go to church? What if he makes me do things I don't want to do? And to bring kids in the equation, there's even more fears. What if he negatively influences the kids? What if he turns them against me and God? What if he leads them into unbelief? These fears are at the very least understandable. That's understandable that someone would go through that. Sometimes, though, women in this situation will respond by trying to assert themselves. They will oppose their husband's poor leadership. And they will fight to take control. Now in this situation, yes, the wife has to be the spiritual guide to the children because they're not getting it from dad. So she needs to be their spiritual guide. But at the same time, they need to be reminded that the husband's still the head. And that role hasn't changed, even though he's an unbeliever. They're still called to, as verse 1 says, submit even to unbelieving husbands. But what about all those fears, though? Aren't those legitimate? Well, in a sense, perhaps, but, but the solution is not to vainly try and take control. It doesn't work. The solution is to trust in God. And you probably see now why this response is pleasing to God, because this requires a ton of faith. And God is always pleased by faith. It requires you to deny all those fears, to put them aside, and instead just just trust God and his will for the family. The solution is not for you to fight and take control It is to trust God and still respect your husband's leadership, even if it may be poor. God is in control. You have to believe that and remember that God blesses those who follow his will, not those who oppose his will. Does this sound tough? It can be, and that can be difficult. 
Thankfully, there's more, though. That there's another reason here that God wants you to, to stand firm in your role as a wife. There's more going on. There's a strategy going on here. Look at verse 1 again. Wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, what? They may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. And there's a profound hope here. And the hope, it's not for divorce, even for an unbelieving and potentially wicked spouse. The hope is for their salvation. 1 Corinthians 7 makes it crystal clear. If you're married to an unbeliever, as long as they consent to live with you, you cannot divorce. It's not an option for you. But this is not to result in a depressing, pathetic, prison sentence-like existence without any hope. And to the contrary, you should be full of hope, and your hope is right here in this verse. God can win them over. God, God can win them to Christ and to the gospel. And he can do it through you. This isn't a guarantee. God's not promising outright here that every unbelieving husband will be saved. But it is a hope. And you're called to rest assured in that hope. To be one here, it's a clear reference to conversion. And God can accomplish this, he says, without a word by the behavior of their wives. Let's start off with what the verse is not saying. This verse is not saying that unbelieving husbands can be saved apart from the gospel. It's not what it's saying. Nobody can be saved apart from the gospel message. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Or even in 1 Peter. Just turn the page back to 1 Peter 1, 23. What did Peter himself say about salvation and the necessity of the word? 1 Peter 1, 23. He says, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through what? Through the living and enduring word of God. No one's saved apart from the word. But understand this, here in 1 Peter, these unbelieving husbands have already heard the gospel and rejected it. Remember, he says they were disobedient to the word. Presumably, they know the gospel. And they heard that Christ came fully God and fully man. He came to earth. He lived a perfect life. Yet he died on the cross. He paid the penalty for sins. He rose from the grave. And now he offers forgiveness of sins and eternal life to any who would believe in him. Presumably, these men heard that message. And no one can be saved apart from apprehending and believing the message of Jesus. But these husbands rejected it. That's the thing. They rejected it. So Peter's not saying that husbands can be won over without the word. He's saying they can be won over without a word. Namely, the the words of their wives. What does this mean? Well, for wives with unbelieving husbands, if your husband has heard the gospel before, He understands it, but he has rejected it. God is not looking to you to constantly and continually just cram the word down their throat over and over again. In fact, to win him over at this point, God doesn't even expect you to use your words. 
He expects you now to use your behavior. That they've heard the gospel and they've rejected. Now it's time for you to use your behavior. Your consistent Christian conduct cannot save anyone. But God can use it to show people the power, the majesty, the reality of the gospel. God can use your attractive living testimony to melt a person's opposition to Christ. That's what's going on here. And that's exactly what Peter said before. Remember the verse that started this whole section? Let's read that again. 1 Peter 2. And look at verse 12. Verses 11 and 12 started us on this whole section here. And verse 12 is like the theme verse. He says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your words, no, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's talk about conversion. It's one thing to tell someone something. It's another thing to show them. You know, when the atomic bomb was proposed in the 1940s, some people were skeptical. They didn't think it would really be that impressive. But when they all saw that first test bomb dropped in New Mexico, there were no more skeptics. Why? Because they all firsthand witnessed the power. And they can't deny it. Unbelievers are are blinded to the gospel. Sometimes... Sometimes, though, God chooses to use the power of your holy life to remove the blinders from their eyes and to open them up to the gospel. Wives, you don't have to nag. You don't have to drag. You have to be exemplary. That's what it is. You have to be exemplary. And that should come as a great relief, but also a great challenge. It's both. You're relieved in that you should not be burdened, that you have to convince your husbands to believe. It's not up to you to prove it, to convince them, to preach them to salvation. They've heard it, they've rejected. Don't be burdened. Instead, though, the challenge comes where you have to live that consistent Christian life amidst adversity and persecution 24-7. That can be a challenge. God will strengthen you. He will help you as you pursue this standard. Just focus on being the excellent wife. And although there are no absolute promises here, you are to take comfort, hope, and encouragement that God can use your example to win over your unbelieving spouse. This is the second instruction for wives in the home, especially those married to unbelievers. First, be submissive. Second, though, be encouraged. God can and many times will use your example. Number three, the third instruction. Be chaste and respectful. Straight from the text, verse two. Be chaste and respectful. You may be wondering, wondering, you know, okay, I'm, I'm supposed to win over my husband without a word, by my behavior, but what exactly kind of behavior are we talking about here? Well, you can read Titus 2, Proverbs 31 on your own and and be the excellent wife pictured there. But Peter has a thing or two to say himself. 
And specifically, he mentions a few things in verse 2. Be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. Verse 2, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Back in 1 Peter 2, verse 12, Peter said that as unbelievers observe your life, God will at times use that to bring them to salvation. It's the same thing here. In fact, he uses the same word for observe. Your husbands will observe how you live. They will. If you're married to an unbeliever, husband or wife, whatever, they're going to observe how you live. But for wives here, the question is, what will they see? Hopefully they will see your chaste and respectful behavior. Being chaste here refers to your purity. Not talking about just sexual purity, just in all of life. Purity in, in all of your walks of life. You're free from moral defilement. You're holy. God will use that picture of purity to melt their hearts and show them the value of the gospel. If I can inject just a side note here, though. Notice from this verse what God uses to win unbelievers. Is it purity or impurity? It's purity. God uses purity to affect and to win unbelievers to Christ. He doesn't use sin or worldliness to attract the unbeliever. He uses godliness, holiness, purity to attract them. Today, though, some Christians have this backwards. They believe that to attract unbelievers to church, for example, they have to act like them. They have to act impure, say things impure, behave impure, watch things impure, and so on, all to you know, build a connection with the lost, and to attract them. Do you think that will work? No. Never works. So let's not bring impurity into the church under the guise of trying to win and attract the lost. If any are to be truly saved, it will only come when God shows them the attractiveness and the purity of the gospel and Christian living. And this applies large scale to the church, but also small scale to that one lone wife trying to win over her husband. It's not going to come through impurity, but through purity. Secondly, in addition to being chaste, the wife is called to be respectful, chaste and respectful. The word is phobos in the Greek, which we get the word phobia from. It means fear. She's to be fearful and to live fearfully. Fearful of what, though? Or fearful of whom? It's not her husband, as you might expect. That's not what he means. She used to live fearfully of God. And that is without a doubt the intention of verse 2. Peter consistently says all throughout First Peter that all of us are not to fear men. Even kings, we are to fear God alone. And it's the same thing here. Respect God and his word. Live accordingly. That should characterize the behavior of wives. Now, why does Peter say that, though? Why, why bother throwing in here, you know, and by the way, live fearfully of God? Why does he say that? He's trying to guard against sin in the wife's submission. See, we've seen, you know, the wife has been called to submit to her husband. What if the unbelieving husband tells her to sin? Should she listen? No. Why not? 
Because she fears God. That's why. This is the limit of her submission. It's not unlimited. She must always put the fear of God before her, first and foremost. This is the exact same limitation Peter put on citizens in 2.17 and on servants in 2.18. The exact same thing. Out of a fear of God and respect for his will, wives must obey God rather than man, even their one flesh, husbands, believing or unbelieving. And one important safeguard for the wives. Now, might this lead to more conflict in the home? You bet. Yeah, absolutely. There may be times where you have, you have to outright disobey your husband because he's telling you to sin or to deny God in some way. And you can't do it. You just cannot do that. But as we've learned over the past like, couple months in First Peter, what do you do if that happens? What do you do in that type of a situation? The answer, same thing. Step one, keep doing what is right. Step two, entrust yourself to God. And step three, endure, even if you're being treated unjustly. Same thing. We've seen that over and over and over again. And God rewards this. God blesses this. And God may even use this to show your husband just how powerful your faith and the faith really are. This is your call to be chaste and respectful to God. Let's move along here. Number four, the fourth instruction for women, do not be vain. From verse three, do not be vain. He says your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses, We'll leave it there. This verse, it's all about cosmetics. All of you know what cosmetics are, of course, but do you know where we get the word cosmetics from? Do you know that? We get the word cosmetics from the word cosmos, which means universe. How does that work? Cosmetics, universe, that, that doesn't seem to fit. Well, we get the English word cosmos from the Greek word cosmos, which means order. It's a word that means things that are orderly. In the ancient Greeks... They started calling the universe cosmos because it, it seemed to be pretty orderly. Well, do you know what the Greeks also referred to as cosmos? They referred that to women decorating themselves, adorning themselves. As women did their hair, as they put on makeup, as they dressed up, they were trying to order themselves attractively, hence the word today, cosmetics. Trying to order yourself. In verse 3, this word for adornment is cosmos. But we're not talking about the solar system. We're talking about cosmetics. We're talking about how women order themselves to make themselves attractive. And Peter mentions three things. Braiding the hair. That's really talking about big hairdos and kind of fancy hairdos. Wearing gold jewelry all over the body, the neck, the arms, the fingers, the ears. And putting on of dresses, the really elaborate garments. And he says, your adornment must not be like this. Not, as he says, externally focused. He says, don't be vain. Do not be vain. Now, we've got to stop for a second and ask the question, is Peter prohibiting all these things? Is he saying that it is sinful for women to, to do their hair, to wear jewelry, put on a dress? 
The answer is no. And let me explain. The Bible never teaches asceticism. That it is a virtue for women to have messy hair, to never wear jewelry, to dress in rags. That's not the point here. Never the point in scripture, asceticism. Rather, rather, Peter's point is on the focus of a woman's attention and effort. What do you depend on to make yourself attractive to others? What do you rely on? And your answer should not be the external. He's not forbidding these things. It's not the point. If you want to argue that he is literally prohibiting all these things, then you would have to literally prohibit women from wearing any clothes at all. Because that's literally what that last part in verse 3 means. It truly reads, putting on clothes, just generally, not dresses, just the putting on of clothes. But of course, that's not what Peter is teaching. And the translators have rightly added the word merely to verse 3. Peter's making the point, though, that these things should not be a woman's focus or priority. You should never overly value them. If you look to these things for your sense of value or worth, then you do have a sin problem. If you look to these things to attract people to yourself and not to God, then you do have a sin problem. But you should want to be attractive to God first and foremost, and that will come through the internal. And sadly today, women are assaulted by vanity. You can't walk 10 feet in a mall without seeing some advertisement directed toward women that they just have to buy the latest purse or shoes or perfume or dresses. We just took a cruise, and on the cruise ship, there were like jewelry stands everywhere. They really want you to buy jewelry. I mean, in the lobby, right next to the front desk, there's this big jewelry stand. They're just putting the temptation in full force for the women. And to make matters worse, fashion changes like every three months. And so you just have to keep buying. And it can become an obsession for some women, which is idolatry. I don't know about you, but I've got some shirts that are 10 years old, and they're still holding up. But I know some women that would rather die than wear something 10 years old. And again, the, the issue here is not whether it's sinful to wear jewelry or dresses. It's what you depend on and trust in to attract people. Do you depend on the external to attract people to yourself, or do you depend on the internal to attract people to God? And what do you think the excellent wife should focus on? It should be a no-brainer. Do not be vain. Your adornment must not be merely external. There's an internal side. It's number five, our fifth instruction for the women. The internal side of things, he says, be gentle and quiet. That's number five, be gentle and quiet from verse four. He says, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. Verse four, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. What is attractive to God? Which is what all of us should be concerned with. He says here, it is the hidden person of the heart. That's who you are on the inside. And what is the hidden person of the heart here for wives? He says it is a gentle and quiet spirit. Now don't confuse this. Don't confuse this with weakness. It's not. Don't confuse meek with weak or gentle with dull. And Christ was the most meek person on the earth, but he was not weak. Instead, this is talking about the wife who does not insist on her rights. She's not pushy, not demanding. When wronged, 
She does not wrong in return. She's teachable instead of argumentative and patient instead of boisterous. And nothing is better than a wife like this. Nothing is worse than a wife who is the opposite. Listen to this. This is a great one. Proverbs 25, 24. It is better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. And it's true. God will use this type of godly character, though, to win your husband to the Lord. More importantly, though, verse 4 says that these attributes are imperishable and precious in the sight of God. And you think about that? That's amazing. You may look down on these attributes like the world does. In gentle and quiet women. What was it, the 1800s? The world hates that. But no, in God's eyes, it's imperishable. It's precious. Do you value what God values? Remember this. Peter uses this word imperishable very selectively. If you've been paying attention to chapters 1 and 2, he uses it very selectively. Back in chapter 1, gold, silver, jewelry, all the thing the world values the most, he says that stuff, that's the perishable stuff. That's the worthless stuff. What then is imperishable? Chapter 1, verse 4, our eternal inheritance is imperishable. Chapter 2, verse or chapter 1, verse 23, the gospel itself is imperishable. And he says this about one other thing. And what is it? It's the character of the godly wife being gentle and quiet. That's imperishable. He doesn't say that about the men or about anyone else, only of the women. It's truly significant. These qualities are imperishable to God, meaning they never fade away. They never lose their value. That's the type of adornment you should be focusing on. That's how you should get ready in the morning. This is the type of cosmetics you should really value. Your hair, ladies, it'll turn gray. Your gold will fade. It'll get lost. Your clothes will get holes in them or they'll go out of style. But your godly character will be perfect in God's eyes forever. Do you want that? Do you value that? Who is richer? The woman with the custom high-profile hairdo, the the $1,000 Louis Vuitton purse, the the $1,000 Marc Jacobs shoes. I had to look all this up, by the way. My wife is laughing at me. The $5,000 Versace dress, the $10,000 diamond ring, or the woman who has a gentle and quiet spirit. Who's richer? In God's eyes, you know the answer. Don't worry about what the world thinks of you. Worry about what God thinks of you. And value that more. Rest assured, though, he's pleased when you trust him and adorn yourself with these values of the heart. We've got two instructions left. Thankfully, they'll be brief. Number six, be reminded. The sixth instruction for women here, be reminded from verses five and six. Verse five, he says, For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Here Peter reminds us, wives in particular, of of the holy women from the Old Testament who exemplified the excellent wife. On the pages of Scripture, these women serve as examples of those who hoped in God, who adorned themselves with a gentle and quiet spirit and were submissive to their own husbands. You might think of Ruth in the Old Testament or some others, but Peter highlights Sarah, wife of Abraham. 
Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. He's probably referring to Genesis 18:12 here, where that's a situation where Sarah was just told that she would bear a child in old age, and she laughs to herself, thinks it's ridiculous. Now, what's kind of remarkable about this is during that situation, you would almost expect her to mock her husband because he was buying into it. You expect her to mock him, but she doesn't. She, in that context, she calls him Lord, son of respect. It just goes to show you that part of her life, her daily life, was just respecting her husband. Now, Peter's not advocating that women today need to call their husbands Lord. This is simply the custom of the day. The principle is to respect your husband. The application of that principle can vary across the ages. And I think if you, if you were to call your husband Lord today, Lord, you'd probably get made fun of. We had a young marriage class back at our old church for a couple of years, and one of the one of the days, one of the like fellowship nights, we were playing this like newlywed game. You know how it goes. And one of the questions was, you know, name one title, embarrassing title that you call your spouse. And one of the couples, we Angel and I both know who we're talking about here. One of the women, she revealed embarrassingly that her husband really liked it when she called him Lord, like in a medieval sense, like me Lord. <laughs> And everyone started laughing. They never lived it down. They still haven't lived it down. <laughs> but for now, though, our point is, for the wise in particular, is be reminded of these examples from the past, those who have gone before you. Whether today in this church or in the Old Testament can really lead the way for you. Lastly, number seven, our last instruction for women is to be exhorted. Be exhorted. Look at the end of verse 6. He says, And you have become her children if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. Today, all true believers are Abraham's spiritual descendants. They share his same path of faith. And likewise, believing wives who live out these instructions can become her spiritual descendants in a sense as well. And this is true for those who show themselves, he says, doing what is right without being frightened by any fear. And these are two so needed closing exhortations. First, he says, do what is right. That's Peter sound like a broken record. Hopefully you're not tired of it by now, but he says this over and over again. Do what is right. Do what is right. Do what is right. No matter the circumstances, no matter the persecution, no matter the suffering, even if it's unjust, just keep doing what is right. There's never an excuse for sin or wrongdoing. Whatever situation you find yourselves in, to the wives. Sin is never the answer. Never justify sin and rebellion in your heart, thinking, well, it's the only way. It's the only way I can get out of this. It's not. Do what is right, he says. Secondly, don't be frightened by any fear. And that's a fitting closing exhortation as well. Like we said earlier, the major issue that, that sinks women who are married to unbelievers is that fear, the fear of the future, all the what-ifs. What will happen to me? What will happen to my future? What will happen to my kids? But it's a trusting God issue. Be faithful to pass on the gospel to your children, but then you've got to trust God for, for their and your future. You just have to trust God. And speaking of examples of women from the Bible, I want to give you an, an encouraging example for this principle here. Did you know that there's a woman in the New Testament who was married to an unbeliever. We never hear about what happened to her husband, whether he was saved or not. We don't know. But she had a daughter. 
And that daughter was also married to an unbeliever. In fact, he was a Gentile, pagan. And we also never hear about what happened to that husband. Maybe he was saved, maybe not, we don't know. But that daughter then had a son. And she was faithful to teach her son the scriptures, to model for him a godly life, even though the dad wasn't. And by God's grace, her son came to salvation. And do you know that son's name? Timothy, of first and second Timothy. His mother was Eunice. His grandmother was Lois. The point is, you don't know God's plan. You don't know what's going to happen generation after generation. You don't know how he'll work it out in the end. But just trust him. Do what is right and don't fear. That's what you have to do. The final lesson here is to make God your confidence. Make God your confidence. Make God your, your security in life. Even if you had a believing husband, you'd really be fooled into thinking that that guarantees you a blessed future. It doesn't. Only fearing God does. So cast out these other fears in your life. Replace them with the confidence in God. When you live according to God's plan, his pattern, his strategy, when you entrust yourself to him, he will deliver you and help you. Husbands, we've got a lot coming for you next week, so you better come back. You can't skip. But these seven instructions for women in the home are helpful for us to remember, especially those married to unbelieving husbands. Be submissive. Be exemplary. Be chaste and respectful. Do not be vain. Be gentle and quiet. Be reminded. Be exhorted. Live these out and then watch God. Bless your life. Bless your marriage. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this word, this precious word. And like we said earlier, it is such a clear and fresh text on marriage, these marriage roles, which our world today is so confused on. They're living in the fog. It's not working. It's falling apart for them. But what a beautiful picture it is for us. May we all live out what we're called to respectively. And today I pray for any wives in here that they would really grow in their example as the godly wife, whether they're married to a believer or not. May they just... And they're on their own, seek to pursue this standard by your grace. We put you first and inform us in their lives to fear you always. And then to just do what they're called to do. May they live submissively, but respectfully, joyfully, and just enjoying all that you have for them. Thank you for this word again. Bless our fellowship as we depart from here. We look forward to the word for husbands next week. May you all really make this an important issue for us to be focusing on how we live in the home. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.